The following podcast contains explicit language. I'm Stephen Metcalf, and this is the Slate Culture Gap Fest Man Bun on a Hot Tin Roof edition. It's Wednesday, June 28th, 2017. On today's show, GLOW stands for Gorgeous Ladies of Wrestling. It's a 10-part streamer on Netflix, a fictionalized take on the 1980s world of female pro wrestling. And then Lord became a global pop sensation four years ago at the age of 16, somewhat incredibly, with the song Royals uh, and an album as good as the song. Her new record, Melodrama, is out, and Carl Wilson has called it the pop album of the year. We will query him as to its merits. And finally, the Kendall reboot has lit up the internet. We will discuss. Joining me today is Slate's editor, Julia Turner. Hello, Julia. Hi, Steve. Hey, and of course, Slate's film critic, Dana Stevens. Hey, Dana. Hey, Steven. Uh, well, this is the first time the three of us have done a show since we got back from Australia. Yeah, I'm so excited. Back on uh, American soil. I don't know about you guys, but this is why I wanted to talk about Australia and plus. I still feel like my brain and body are recovering in a good way from the dazzling wonders of that trip. Uh, Absolutely everything about it was antipodal, right? Like it's not only that you're, you know, uh, deplaning after 30 hours in the sky to a completely different time zone. It's also, you know, the opposite season and our show's really popular and beloved there. Yeah, it's it's, it's like, pass- <laughs> I was saying to Steve, it's like passing through a portal where we become more interesting going to Australia. We need to do it every year for our own self-esteem. <laughs> I don't know. I think that could be dangerous. All right, well, back to, you know, the banal reality of, uh, of Eastern Standard Time um, in which we're three drab podcasters talking about pop culture. GLOW is an acronym for Gorgeous Ladies of Wrestling. Uh, what was an all-female wrestling show in the 1980s is now a fictionalized behind-the-scenes account of that show. It stars Alison Brie as a self-serious actress who wants to do Strindberg and is just grateful at this point that she's not doing porn. It also stars Betty Gilpin as her washed-up soap star friend, and Mark Marin is the frustrated hack cineast, a B-movie director who is Svengali to the whole operation. Let's, uh, let's listen to a clip. Ruth Wilder. Book took you. Yeah, it's a headshot. Oh, Strindberg. Who the fuck is that? Oh, it's a I'm kidding. I know who Strindberg is. I'm not an idiot. So what are you, like a, like a real actor? Yeah. Done a bunch of plays in Omaha at a little spot called the Blue Barn Theater. Mm. I did a film a few years back. I've also done extensive mask work and clowning workshops. How much acting will there be on this show? As opposed to what? Hair pulling. You don't like wrestling? Well, I don't really know wrestling. You don't think wrestling is acting? It's not, is it? It's, it's more like a sport with costumes. Or, sorry, are you, are you hiring actors to play wrestlers or are we the wrestlers? Yes. Which one? Uh, Julia, this is uh, this is quite an interesting show. What'd you make of it? Uh, I thoroughly enjoyed it and gobbled up five episodes of it, maybe even six. Um, but I have a few quibbles, which I will hold in reserve until I hear what you guys think. Yeah, I would have to say on balance after three episodes that I will not continue with this show, although I do concede that it's highly entertaining. I can see its addictive properties, and uh, and it's got some really interesting casting ideas, like putting Mark Maron in that that role as the, uh, the the sleazy developer. 
But there was some some kind of thinness to this show that maybe the three of us can get at together where I didn't feel like it took place in a richly established world. It felt like everybody had 80s costumes on and was sort of, you know, doing funny 80s things. But I didn't really get a sense of either what the sort of gender politics of the show are, what the social universe is that it takes place in. Um, what these misfit ragtag women who get rounded up to be in Gorgeous Ladies of Wrestling have invested in the show, except that they all need jobs. It just didn't seem to take place in kind of the maybe richly textured world that we expect from, I guess, what we're calling prestige television. So I guess this is all ways of saying that it felt a little bit trashy to me, which is, of course, part of the whole point of the show and the enjoyment of the show. So maybe I'm just not getting it. Oh, man, I have to say that I'm so unhelpfully on that agnostic fence when it comes to you know all the relevant questions uh, surrounding glow including Marin's performance there were moments when i thought he was terrific and that it was an inspired piece of casting uh, and that he's kind of necessary as the center of the show almost more than Allison Bree the sleazeball who would exploit all these women uh, in order maybe to rescue his career. Um, a, a couple of observations before a judgment, but uh, it seems to me the show speaks to our moment in two pretty obvious ways. The first is that it, it shares a producer and a lot of DNA with Orange is the New Black, uh, and it, it kind of answers to this hunger for programming about the dilemmas of would-be empowered women in an interesting way. And and it really clearly, I mean, it just has a, a lot of DNA in common with Orange is the New Black. Uh, uh, you know, roster of very desperate, uh, very diverse women, um, <laughs> whose backstories are going to animate and bulk out the you know the run of the series. Um, and the second, I thought, in some ways, more interesting thing, because it was less familiar and, and more poignant, really, to the current moment, is that pro wrestling is a metaphor for our contemporary situation, especially our politics, you know, in which it's impossible to tell the difference. I mean, you hear it in that clip. Uh, Marin refuses, the Marin character refuses to acknowledge a distinction between the real and the fake. And that, it seems to me, they were very in control of that aspect of it, whereas perhaps the, you know, kind of feminist counter-programming, -pro uh, you know, Orange is the New Black aspect of it seemed a little received and possibly even a little stale to me. What struck me as fresh was was uh, the, 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 you know, the aspect of pro wrestling that has always served as a kind of, uh, you know, postmodernist looking glass to our political situation. Anyway. If you guys are both going to cavil so much, I think I'm going to have to come out as a as more adamant defender of the show now that I've I've uh, taken the measure of your esteem for it. Um, but I did share that question whether the diversity and variance among the women who are in the ensemble here was right. Like it felt a little bit so targeted for our moment and for the desire of the Orange is the New Black producers to find another milieu in which they could recapture the lightning in the bottle of um, choosing to tell the stories of women whose stories don't typically get told on television, uh, that they may have like over <laughs> diversified the staff beyond the realms of plausibility. But I think actually one of the appeals of the original Glow was that it was more diverse than the rest of television, both in uh, race and body shape and size. And so I'm not sure the show does a great job exactly explaining why that would be the case or, you know, whether that was something that Marin director character was looking for. It just had to do with who was willing to be in the show because they didn't have other opportunities or what. But I, I don't think as a matter of fact, it's crazy. However, that does point up what my one cavil is about the show, which is there's a bunch of things in it that feel slightly hastily and directly executed. 
And I'm willing to forgive them because of how charming I think all three of the central performances are and many of the ensemble performances, but particularly Alison Brie, Betty Gilpin, and I think Mark Maron, whose performance really works for me in this. Um, like, I'm I'm along for the ride. It's just too fun. It's like perfect summer TV to me. It's it's fun to watch these women trying out these personas. It's fun to watch them wrestle. And as you get further into the show, you do get more training montages and more wrestling moves and falls and holds and more understanding of how of of how this kind of wrestling works. Um, but there there are just a few places where the show kind of dashes past a few points. Um, and doesn't fully do the work of subtly setting up its world. And it just doesn't feel quite as fully baked as some of the TV we're used to seeing these days. All right. Well, let me tell you what I liked about the show. I liked that it was not, um, I liked that it was not as obviously well-written as your now average peak TV television show. Um, (laughs) And it had a kind of, it had, but in all seriousness, like there's a style of writing now that's so automated uh, and so professionalized and so clever and and it's just writers in a room just knowing how to deliver the setup and deliver the um you know a uh, uh, punchline i thought the show was virtuous for lacking that in a way it's been so long since i saw anything that had raffish um slightly underbaked charm to it which is probably the appropriate style to tell this set of stories yeah, it has this, a little bit of a let's put on a show in the barn kind of aesthetic, right? In that it is pre-reality TV days. It's not about uh, high style, big business Hollywood and people shaping their personas with professional agents. I mean, it really is about a bunch of normal, everyday, you know, pretty much low to middle income women trying to figure out what they're even doing or what wrestling might possibly be for them. And and that slightly, I don't know, kind of um, bricolage aspect of it is has its charm. Yeah, I think that Let's Put on a Show quality is exactly right, Dana. It's just fun to watch these people putting this thing together. It's fun to – it's almost like watching a bunch of skits and sketches because that's what they're doing. They're kind of testing out these goofy ideas and seeing what's funny and seeing what works. Um, and that kind of process story is always entertaining. And Mark Maron is basically playing himself like a formerly angry, dysfunctional – addict who uh you know is is reached a slightly wiser version of himself which is certainly the persona that he presents on his podcast um but it kind of works in the world and i also think Alison Bree's performance is fascinatingly different from what i've seen her do before because she typically plays women with no self doubt right women of great composure and certainty trudy was the unflappable wasp help meet in Mad Men. And then her character on Community was um, maybe not without insecurities, but just so fully vibrantly herself in any moment didn't have a lot of like anxiety or self-consciousness about presentation, I think. Um, So to see this kind of just really desperate, scrabbling, uh, striving, earnest, it's almost uncomfortable how anxious Alison Brie is in her performance and then how good it makes her feel when she figures out how to be better at this absurd thing. Um, I thought that was really, really terrific. Mm. All right. Well, the show is Glow. It's on Netflix. We're um, curiously divided about it, uh, both among ourselves and individually, internally. So um, come to facebook.com slash culturefest. Tell us what we should think about it. All right. Moving on. 
All right, well, now is the moment in the podcast we talk about business before we proceed any further. Surely we have some. Dana, what what do you got? First of all, Steve, we have an important uh, announcement about our own show, which is that next week, because of the 4th of July holiday, we will be coming out a day later than usual. So there will still be a Culture Gab Fest next week, but it will release on Thursday, July 6th, rather than Wednesday, July 5th. So we'll see you then. Also, we wanted to tell you about another of Slate's podcasts, The Gist with Mike Pesca, Slate's daily podcast on politics and culture. If you've listened to The Gist at all or heard Mike Pesca as a guest on our own show, which he's done many times, you know that he is a unique voice to radio on demand. There's nobody quite like Mike Pesca, and what he puts together every day is really special. This week, Mike will be interviewing Jeremy McCarter, the co-author of Hamilton, A Revolution, and Helen Peterson of BuzzFeed. And also, he'll interview Eddie Izzard about his new book. So check The Gist out every weekday afternoon at slate.com slash the gist, or you can find it wherever you get your podcasts. Also, we should let our listeners know that today in Slate Plus, we're going to be having one of our Esprit d'Escalier conversations, a conversation where we go back and pick up the missing tidbits from a previous conversation, regrets, uh, questions, things we wish we had talked about. And today's edition will be Esprit d'Escalier d'Australie, that is us visiting Australia again and talking about our memories from that very intense and very wonderful trip. This is the first time we've been in the studio all together since the Australia trip, so uh, this has been our first chance to revisit it together. And remember that Slate Plus members will get bonus segments like that for all of your favorite Slate shows, plus ad-free podcasts. If you want to sign up for Slate Plus for free for 90 days, just download our new iOS app at slate.com slash app and try all the benefits of Slate Plus free for three months. So try it out by going to slate.com slash app. All right, Steve, back to the show. Four years ago, the song Royals turned a 16-year-old New Zealander into a global pop phenomenon. Her name, of course, is Lord. Now her new record, Melodrama, is here. I'd easily nominate Melodrama as the best pop album of the year so far, perhaps the best we're likely to get, writes Carl Wilson, Slate's uh, wonderful music critic. Carl, welcome to the show. Hi, Steve. Thanks for having me. Uh, those are confident words. Why don't you back them up by picking a track uh, for us to uh, play uh, before we talk? Okay, why don't we start with um, the Louvre? I think progresses I call and you come through Blow all my friendships To sit in hell with you But we're the greatest They'll hang us in the Louvre Down the back, but who cares Still the Louvre Okay, I know that you are not my type Still I fall I'm just the sucker Let you fill her mind But what about love? Nothing wrong with us Supernatural Carl, you love this record. Tell me why. To me, the interesting thing about this album is, you know, Lord emerged, as you were saying at the, at the top at 16, four years ago, um, as really this kind of left field kind of fluke hit with Royals, um, which came along, I think, at a point when sort of pop diva chart pop was at its peak this decade and was sort of the most dominant it's been. Um and Lord kind of offered a sort of skeptical rebuttal in some ways to the to the ex- excesses of pop at the time with this very sort of minimalist electronic sound and this very sort of teenage, all, you know, almost teenage art manifesto kind of style lyrics um, and, the, and this very unique voice. And the interesting thing that's happened in the interim is, um, 
you know, even though she sort of withdrew from the spotlight for a while, she herself from the strength of that hit was ushered into the big chart pop realm. And what's emerged with melodrama is this really interesting hybrid of that kind of art school kid um, sensibility with a big pop sensibility. And to me, this album is probably a transitional album for Lord. And it, I imagine that we'll see a lot more changes from her. She's still just 20. But, um, but in some way, in some ways, this is kind of a summary of the styles of the past seven years or so, as well as a, a, as a really unique take on it. And it's at the same time, a really introspective and, um, an individualistic album and an album that has all of the virtues of, of big hooks and, um, and big scenarios and a, and a real romanticism to it. And I think, I think it's a really unique document. Mm. I mean, that is a tough target to hit, right? Where she kind of maintains her identity as counter-programming to the big pop diva, but also comes out with big, uh, you know, a big sound radio play record. Talk, talk a little bit about just technically how she does that. Cause I, I agree with you. I think she has done it. I think, yeah. I mean, some of those sort of hallmarks of her style, those kind of crisp thin keyboards and things are still there, but they're now layered on in different ways and her voice is layered in different ways. Um, but there's also sort of added in guitars and pianos and organic drums and things to give it, um, a bigger feel in that way. You know, both her and Jack Antonoff, the producer that she worked with on this um, in New York, are self-professed big Queen fans, and you can and you can hear that um, in it as well. There's it has these moments where it kind of stretches for a, a more epic kind of sound, and then also the song structures have evolved. She she is using the tricks of modern pop, the pre-chorus and chorus and returns and thematics that people use, but she doesn't use them in the way that you'd expect somebody shooting for the top of the charts would. Um, there's, they, they tend to take sort of little left turns and little twists in places where they don't go for the complete payoff. And so, yeah, it's, I think it's, a, it's interesting how, um, how she manages to do that technically as well as kind of through her sensibility. So, Carl, as you say, Lord is only 20. This is her second album. And in some ways, although it seems like she's denied this in interviews, but it seems to be a breakup album. It's pretty much thematically um, built around, it seems like, one broken relationship. And she did, I think, although she's very private about it, recently break up with someone. I'm wondering what you think of it in terms of how does it fall in the uh, in the pantheon of, of breakup albums? Or, or would you deny that it is one? I kind of would deny that it's a breakup album. I think it's kind of a heartbreak album um, more than it's about the specifics of, of that relationship. But the other thing is that it's, it's kind of a double sided concept album because there is the part about the relationship, but there's also an ongoing thread through it, which is the part that she does talk about more openly. Um, that's also kind of about being 20 and hanging out with your friends and partying maybe too much. Um, and the, she says that she structured the album around the idea of a house party and the and the stages in the evening of a house party. And clearly, it leaves that 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 scenario several times to talk more about the kind of heartbreak side of it. But it's so to me, it's interesting the way that those two things are woven together. And I think for her, the implication is kind of that they're inseparable. That 
that this that the relationship happened in a social scene and that the social scene also kind of maybe reflects some of the things that were wrong with the relationship. Lord has a tendency is kind of one of the unique factors of her writing style, at least at this stage in her life, to speak in the first person plural. She's she's in, on both albums. She's kind of constantly talking about we. Right. And we the, can be royals. You're right. She's, yeah. Yeah. The royal we. Yeah, exactly. And <laughs> and on the first album, that was kind of this grand we of some kind of like teenage underground art movement. And this album, it can be all kinds of things. It can be the couple in the relationship. It can be this group of friends who are maybe going to excesses in the evenings on the weekends. And it can be kind of a, a Lord and herself kind of we. And it and it kind of is a moving target in some ways that helps her, I think, shield herself a little bit, but also relates to her willingness to kind of still be speaking for something bigger than herself. In the, in the review, I was joking that, you know, Jack Antonoff is, is Lena Dunham's boyfriend. Um, and in many ways, Lord does sort of think of herself a la Hannah Horvath uh, as a voice of a generation. Yeah, there's moments on this album, I have to say, lyrically, where that self-importance got to me a little bit. There's, there's, It's called melodrama, right? And in some ways, it's ironic about its own um, self-dramatizing and, and about the way that teenage life is all about self-dramatizing. But I don't think Lord yet has quite enough perspective on that life to, uh, to, be, to be aware of the thin line between ironizing about being a drama queen and just being a drama queen. Yeah, I think that's very perceptive. Although I do think you know, melodrama definitely puts it in that framework. And in some ways, I think it's kind of a fond farewell to that sensibility. You know, this is sort of her coming into her 20s. And in some ways, I think she wanted to play that up in, in kind of an affectionate tribute to that mindset. But yeah, there are moments that seem a little less aware of what she's doing. I just There were several different moments on the album, and I can point to specific lyrics if we want to listen to them, but moments where I felt like, oh, that was a nice rhyme, or that was a nice turn of phrase, and then she milked it too hard. <laughs> I'm thinking of the, the, I think the song is called um, Sober 2, melodrama in uh in in parentheses even the two to me is a little bit pretentious when a song has roman numeral one and roman numeral two but there's a moment in there where she has some nice rhyme about oh how fast the evening passes washing out the champagne glasses and when i first heard that i thought oh that's a nice little turn of phrase it's sort of t.s Eliot like or something you know it sort of reminded me of the women come and go talking of michelangelo this like image of alienation but then she repeats it about seven times before the end of the song and it kind of loses its power yeah that i had the exact same experience that exact same line where it's like oh yeah she's clever and then it's like oh she got anything else up her sleeve come on <laughs> this line this line can't withstand this amount of repetition um i also think i mean basically i'm not sure i could point to a better pop album this year but i was not in love with this album and i don't for me none of the songs on it achieved the heights of Royals. And I say that as someone who is basically really excited for Lord to keep making music for decades to come, as you know, in your review and to see what else she does. But to me, this album seems a little bit stuck in the the world weariness of the extremely young person, which her just incredibly sharp, skeptical, lacerating voice um, was so surprising coming from where it did and who it did uh, on the first album. Here, it loses a little bit of its surprise. Also, for me, just to my own musical taste, I feel like sonically the album resists um, 
giving us a complete pop banger a little bit, even though it's got uh, Jack Antonoff, who's capable of such tricks um, at her side. Like it's it kind of stays in this sort of uh, ballady, thinky streamscape song space. Um, and I just I, I would have loved one or two that just like gave you the simultaneous joy of being a a dance floor pop song and having the world weariness laced through it. And so then without the without that juxtaposition, you just get the world weariness. And some of it to me is quite effective and some of it feels a little affected. Mm. Yeah, then perhaps the word jejun comes to mind. Um, yeah, I mean, I think, you know, you've just asked for two opposite things. <laughs> and, fair, and, fair to call me out. And in some ways, I think that is that is the the problem of this album is that is that it is caught between those things. To me, I think my investment in Lord ever since that first album has been so complete that I'm pretty happy to be with her in her stages as she goes. And I have a, a perhaps misplaced faith that this is all leading some really fascinating places. And so I think I partly enjoy the album as a as a as a report back on the stages of that you know if you think about pure heroin that first album it was a completely asexual album on many levels and so you know one of the things that's happening here is this somebody coming into their own and experiencing romantic disappointment and all of those things for the first time and i think there is a freshness to that world weariness still but one of the most fascinating things she did an interview a few weeks ago with the guardian where she you know, plainly stated that, you know, ultimately her goals are to be up there with, she named Paul Simon and Leonard Cohen and Jenny, Jody Mitchell. And I think that is where she's going. And I kind of mm-hmm. think that this album, you know, Jack Antonoff also worked on Taylor Swift's in 1989 and Taylor Swift has become a good friend of hers. And I think there's almost a little too much Taylor Swift on this album. But to me, that's mm-hmm. I'm I'm down with that being part of the stages we see this young kind of incredible artist go through. I, I'm completely with Carl on this one. I mean, uh, you know, when you look back to so she said Paul Simon, Leonard Cohen, and Joni fucking Mitchell, which I kind of loved, um, yeah. and those are great artists to aspire to. The album often sounds to me a little bit like Lady Gaga meets Kate Kate Bush, um, <clears throat> which I loved, but. What I find plausible about it is that you had this great moment in the early 1970s of kind of singer-songwriter, whatever, authorially driven, very personal diary-like um, music from people like um, Joni Mitchell. Uh, and I and I and I don't think the record company and a lot of intermediaries got between the author of the music and the final product. I mean, maybe that's that's naivete on my part, but but that's that's my impression. And now you have a kind of facts, you know, very belated facsimile of it in which a young uh, pop uh, chanteuse is like growing up in public and they're kind of stages of the cross that struck me strike me as often very um uh, uh, calculated and overproduced. I I think that she squares that circle. I really do. I think Lord is some odd midpoint um between uh Joni Mitchell, you know, of the of the early nineteen seventies of blue and uh, you know, the hissing of summer lawns and uh and and Taylor Swift nineteen eighty nine. I didn't think such a thing was possible, but um I completely you know, on tracks like Homemade Dynamite, I completely buy it. I feel like she's got a way to go lyrically and musically before she's in Joni Mitchell territory, but it's but it's great that she's aspiring <laughs> to get there. Yeah, you, you have to remember that when Joni Mitchell was twenty, she was 
playing in cafes and and doing this kind of woodshedding off on her own. And if you listen to those first couple of Joni Mitchell albums, they there's a lot that's not great shakes on those out there as well. So there is this effect, you know, Lord was was signed to a record label contract at 13. And so she's going through those stages in a very different way. And, and perhaps that'll be to her ruination, but I, I, I don't think so. I mean, to me, there's another whole conversation to be had here that we can't even get into about the, I would argue, maybe overvalorization of teenage girl experience that's, that's putting so many teenage mm. girls out there as pop products before they've even become people properly. But I was wondering if we could go out on or at some point listen to my favorite track, which is maybe the most emo on the whole record, a piano ballad called Liability. For me, you're a liability. You're a little much for me. So they pull back, make other plans. I understand. I'm a liability. Get you wild, make you leave. All right, well, Carl, uh, it's always a pleasure to have you on the show. Uh, thanks for coming on to talk about Lord. I'm so happy to do it. Because women needed to be afflicted with an impossible standard of male beauty, too, the Ken doll was introduced in 1961 as a counterpart to Barbie. Ever since, his name has been an insult to any man dedicated to bland perfection, especially physical perfection. And to the best of my knowledge, Ken has never once soared even an inch above his banal origins. So, of course, it was inevitable that he would be relaunched. And here he is, or really... Here they are. Ken comes now in different shapes and sizes, as well as ethnicities and hairstyles, but he's still always just Ken, a byword for the man who designed to please everyone inspires no one except possibly Twitter, Dana Stevens, which is lit up with memes about man bun Ken in particular. <laughs> Take it away. Yeah, I was on vacation last week, so I, I missed the release of, of Man Bun Ken and all the other new Kens. And uh, and then when we started researching this segment and deciding we were going to talk about Ken, I was just treated to this incredible display, a peacock's tail of hilarious um, Twitter comments on, on the new Kens. Can I just read you a couple of these really golden oh Ken God, tweets? Oh, my God, please. Yes. Just saw the Man Bun Ken doll ride by me on his longboard with a copy of Infinite Jest. <laughs> <laughs> and the man bun Ken, if you take a look at him online, you'll see he's he's very much the uh, the sort of Bernie bro of of the dolls. Another really great breakdown, and you, you y'all might have seen this one because I think it went really viral. But this tweet breaks down the six different types of Kens, and uh, it's all the better if you're looking at the grid. But I think the words also kind of evoke the images. It says, "Which new Ken are you? Bisexual model, Rachel Maddow, Bernie would have won, fifteen <laughs> year old app developer, hottest lesbian on Tinder." Or Chad. <laughs> <laughs> I like the idea of a Ken being Chad. <laughs> Chad. Chad is definitely a Chad, but Rachel Maddow is a perfect call. There's this one Ken who's sort of, yeah, a white guy with big heavy horn rim glasses and a black crew cut. And you can really just imagine him on MSNBC at 9, 9 p.m. All right, Julia, well, I, I sort of have to ask you, did you play with Barbie? I did have a few Barbies. I never had a Ken. I remember the fascination being around the dressing, the like putting on and off of the tool, the flammable tool outfits or chiffon or like weird kind of satin on the front and like hard nubbly plastic on the back seeming uh, flounces. Um, so a lot of 
clearly visceral, textural memories of Barbie and her clothes. Also, those little plastic snaps that were kind of fiddly and hard to deal with. Um, but I never had a Ken. I never encountered a Ken until I was a, a babysitter in my teens, um, babysitting for a young girl who had a ton of Barbies and Kens. And then I would play subversive feminist Barbie babysitter with her where and we would do storytelling play, as uh, we learn it is called in the uh Barbie play style research lab um, where she would tell stories of Barbie getting into distress and Ken rescuing her. And then I would always take over the Barbies and Kens and have Ken get like stuck in a witch's cave and the Barbie have to come rescue Ken and say, geez, Ken, this cave is really easy to get out of. Why didn't you get out of the cave? (laughs) Um, So that's my entire experience with Ken. Uh, striving to emasculate Ken for an audience of one eight-year-old. <laughs> <laughs> As evolved now into a management technique. I like it. What What is it, Julia, do you think about? I mean, I thought the man bun Ken, to me it was like the Zodiac killer jokes surrounding Ted Cruz. It made me think that the earth... Uh, as a planet and the humans as a species are in fact redeemable, right? It was like the little candle in the heart heart of the deepest darkness. And Man Bun Ken to me is just so fucking funny. Why? Why is it so funny? Why is it so right? Why is it so timely? Talk me through it. I don't know that I think it's funny. You seem to think it's ridiculous maybe. I feel like this is a, I mean, this should be understood as a, commercial effort by a large corporation to make its product palatable to the type of parents who, like us, find the social mores of old Barbie gross. It's like too white, too unrealistic, too just old school and not, it's like not in keeping with any of our parenting tactics. Oh, no, no, no. I I understand the motivations of the Mattel Corporation. I'm asking you why Man Bun Ken memes on Twitter are so timely and funny. Oh, I don't think they are. I didn't enjoy them very much. (laughs) I just think the whole thing is like stupid and ignorable. I mean, I basically feel like it's it's a social good that, uh, you know, that, that these dolls are getting updated and that like the purchasing power of a new generation of parents is is generally and not universally but trending less retrograde than previous generations and so why make fun of man bun ken i mean i don't really understand The, the thing the thing that is the fundamental question here is um or the thing that would be truly radical i think and that i would criticize about my own parenting is um to really make dolls a thing for boys um and like plenty i'm sure plenty of boys play with dolls and my guys have even some interest in them but like i don't know it's built into me like when they evince interest in dinosaurs or trains we get them dinosaur and train stuff uh but like the one time they like fed a bottle to a doll at a play group I didn't go out and get them a bunch of dolls. They have like little stuffed animals. They take care of the stuffed animals. They tell storytelling about, you know, feeding and the, you know, like they do all the kind of caretaking stuff that they see me and their dad do for them and other people who love them in their lives. But, uh, you know, that that to me, the, the radical thing in child rearing would be to foster that kind of caretaking play in the imaginative space of young boys more so than in the representation of who is getting mm-hmm. taken care of. And that's where I think Barbie is a different kind of doll. Like the distinction between 
what a Barbie doll is and what a baby doll is kind of comes into play. Because I think the the radical steps are more to be made in the baby doll play area. The Barbie doll thing is about imagining a, f- a fantasy grown-up life. And that's why Ken is an accessory, because if you're a young girl, like the whole story is, oh, what are you going to be? And what's your job going to be? And what are your outfits going to be like? And, mm-hmm. you know, you're going to go on dates and you might have a dream wedding and all that stuff. But, like, you don't actually – you know, you're not actually romantically interested in anybody. Mm-hmm. You're only interested in the notion of it. So right. t- to me, I don't know, like, yay, but who cares is my response to Man Bun Ken. Well, I guess so. But Dana, it seems to me that in her incisive commentary, Julia's slowly approaching what's interesting here, which is that, you know, there's something- <laughs> How incisive something can it be about- if I only approached it slowly? <laughs> <laughs> exactly right. But it, which damn, is that- Damn, um, you, Steve. There's something about Dana, right? Like you and I both find Man Bun Ken, but like, like just like bottomlessly funny, right? Like <laughs> yes. I laughed for and hours. And I will, okay. I will defend that to the death that Man Bun Ken and his cohorts are hilarious. All right, so let's 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 raise to the surface of consciousness uh, and self understanding what we find so fucking funny about it. Doesn't it have something to do with a? It implies that probably the really graceful way to accept the new feminist moment as men is to accept that you're this horrible, barbarous, uh, primitive, atavistic, um, you know, uh, now useless holdover from a previous era and just fucking fess up to it, Um, (laughs) right? As opposed to pretending to, you know, a, a, a kind of woke feminism underneath which is all the same old impulses, which is to mansplain, uh, dictate terms, um, and elevate, you know, white maledom as as the default human. Well, I mean, part, of course, of the the array, part of the point of this whole new array of of new Kens is is that they're not all white. There's one that seems to be kind of of mixed race. There's one that seems to be African-American. The Rachel Maddow doll might be an Asian Ken. I'm not completely sure. There's also a range of body types, which is something that's happened a while ago in Barbie type dolls, but that hasn't really happened in male action figures. So in the very era where, as we talked about on this show in relation to Baywatch, when the, the ideal male body is getting more and more impossible to obtain and impossible overcut and all of that. There's now the broad Ken doll who also happens to be the the one with a man bun. And if you look at his entire body, I mean he's 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 I guess supposed to be an average shape. He's not he's not a impossible sort of athletic shape. He's a little bit wider. <laughs> oh, this is such a silly conversation. I mean, I guess I guess to me, let me defend just the the importance of laughing at the new six models. Or I keep saying six, which is the number of images that seem to have been released in a grid to the public. But I think there's going to be more, even more body and hair and style types than that. But what is Mattel attempting to do in designing these various multiracial, multi-sized, multi-hair styled Kens? It's trying to reimagine masculinity, right? For apparently little girls, but maybe little boys as well, for children anyway, different ideas of what masculinity could do. And uh, and, and I think maybe part of the humor for you and me, Steve, is, is that that new array is, uh, is, is still so narrow and so ridiculous that there's still something so um, so emasculated and kind of clown-like about these, these six mm-hmm. representations of masculinity. I think that maybe the, the absurdity comes in the fact that, you know, in this moment when femininity and feminism and all of these things are being redefined and discussed and they're so out there in the in the Twitter sphere, masculinity is something that, you know, is completely in crisis and completely in question as to what its future right. should be. And these dolls right. kind of perform that. 
Yes, I agree. But I think what's but funny about the funny? Tw- what's funny is that is that Man Bun Ken was immediately weaponized by Twitter to make fun of Bernie Bros. Right? That's the that's the object of the satire of Man Bun Ken right now. I mean, some of it is making fun of the doll and making fun of Mattel, but most of it is making fun of this kind of would be new sensitive man who underneath this kind of thin layer of woke feminism and kind of strategically deployed self eunuch making is actually a white heterosexual heterosexist man who still wants to be dominant and on top and it seems to me that is a very rapier satire and was very clever and the speed with which the hive mind of twitter happened upon it just strikes me as miraculous Ugh, I do not buy this argument at all. Somehow you guys are making me, you've made me decry Glow, a show I sincerely enjoyed and love. And now you're making me defend Man Bun Ken. But here I am. I like, I don't think it matters if, I mean, first of all, sure, some people used, used the existence of Man Bun Ken to make fun of uh, insufficiently um, progressive men who think they are more progressive than they are. Fine. Such people are worth making fun of. What a useful tool. But I think it's, um, I don't know. I think that Man Bun Ken is an admirable step forward for society, <laughs> I will say. And I think it doesn't matter if uh, a corporation is cynical in its motives. Like what's heartening here is they did the market research and the market research showed them that too many Americans think old white heteronormative Ken is lame and they want more different Kens. And of course, Ken is just always going to be ludicrous because his personhood is the same as like a plastic Barbie briefcase. Like he's not, he's, he, he can't, he can never be more than an accessory. Uh, but it is a modest step forward for society that Mattel oh believes, that we believe that Barbie should have more options in her Ken, just as she has long had options in, uh, you know, choosing whether to wear a fur-covered mule or a sensible um, cap toe pump. Is she driving the pink Jeep? Or is she getting in the green glittery motorcycle? <laughs> but like in Justin, in you do, they, these dolls are powerful for all that they seem ridiculous to us. That's part of why so many people have objected to them for so long. And it's like a modest step forward that the imaginations of a bunch of young people will be slightly broader than they were before. Oh, Julia, I have to say I marvel at your ability to say brilliant things while fundamentally misunderstanding the premise of the segment. Um, <laughs> the, the purpose of Man Bun Can was to make fun of me. And somehow we've strayed off topic. <laughs> I I don't want to make fun of you, Steve. I want to I, I want to protect and shelter you and pop you in a pink jeep. <laughs> <laughs> Can I also I just pre- point I out? Come, <laughs> I come precastrated, <laughs> Julia. There's nothing you can do to. <laughs> oh yeah. <laughs> Uh, there's nothing. There's nothing you could do to add to that. Your immense gelding powers, notwithstanding, Julia. All right, uh, tell us <clears throat> what you think of this ridiculous segment at Facebook.com/slash/CultureFest. I thought we were talking about the man bun meme, um, and Julia thought we were talking about corporate mores. And as always, Dana was the center of uh, of um, common sense gravity. All right, moving on. All right. Well, now is the moment in our podcast where we endorse Dan. No, 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 What do you have? Stephen, my endorsement this week is related to Pride Weekend, which I missed being any part of because I was on vacation with my family in a place that was 
too remote, too remote for pride to be displayed except by pine trees. And uh, that's a weekend that I hate to miss in New York because it always sort of feels like the official beginning of summer and everybody's out and it's beautiful. And anyway, it, it just it was a particularly important feeling pride this year because it was the first under the Trump administration, obviously. And uh, and then by chance that on that weekend that that I wasn't in town, we got an email from a listener that was complaining that our show is essentially sold out to gay interests, I guess, because we had a lesbian on the show last week as one of the guest hosts. I'm not quite sure what got this guy fired up, but he was basically saying, why are you in the pocket of big gay? Uh, to which our producer answered him with a very smart <laughs> sort of statistical breakdown of the content of our shows over the last year and the hosts that we've had and essentially came up with the number that we're about 5% gay, which is significantly less than the actual portion of the population that is LGBTQ. So anyway, I just feel like in response to that guy and in response to having missed pride, I need to queer up the show by some percentage in my endorsements today. So uh, I'm going to endorse three people on Twitter who um, don't necessarily tweet about gender and sexuality issues at all, but are either transgender or gay tweeters who are just wonderful people that I follow for their funny writing and their political insights. And uh, some of them are writers in other places. Some of them I really only know as excellent tweeters. Um, but here are the three of them. One of them is named Gabe Ortiz. I believe he writes for Daily Cost on a regular basis, um, but he's just really fun to follow on anything at all. And his handle on Twitter is Tusk, all caps, T-U-S-K 81. That's Gabe Ortiz. Uh, I also follow a wonderful um, transgender tweeter, just very funny, smart woman named Parker Malloy. And she goes by her own name, P-A-R-K-E-R-M-O-L-L-O-Y. And thirdly, and this is only for somebody who likes threads, because she's one of those people who will do like long, ranty threads, which I really enjoy when the person is a, is, a, is good at it. Um, but this third woman is Alexandra Aaron, and she also goes under her own name. So Alexandra and then E-R-I-N. And uh, really, those are just sort of plucked from the Twitter sphere because there are plenty of other great LGBTQ tweeters that I follow. But yeah, if you, like that guy who complained about our show, feel that you know, somehow LGBTQ issues are overrepresented on this show or in your life, get with the program and start, uh, start getting to know some people in the world that is so foreign to you. And maybe you'll start to see that the representation is what it's all about. Dana Stevens in the pocket of big gay. Sad. <laughs> <laughs> Julia, uh, what do you have? I would like to pull a Steve here and endorse something oh remote but awesome. Uh, but not that remote and well worth visiting. I took my son's, I was on vacation last week. Thanks, Steve, for holding down the podcast fort. Um, and my husband and I took our sons to Mass Mocha on oh, a day yes. of wild, ravaging thunderstorms in Western Massachusetts. Um, and so we're inside these huge, massive concatenation of barns filled with amazing Technicolor art with pounding rain on tin roofs overhead. Uh, and it is, A, a great museum, which I remembered from the time I visited before, maybe 15 years ago. But B, I think an even better museum than it was when it first opened. And C, a really great museum for kids. There's just like enough room for them. It's big enough that you don't, you're not like constantly pulling them back and trying to get them not to bump into something or touch the art. Um, and then they have this wonderful kid space room that has a special installation, a piece of art that's designed for kids to like interact with and run through. I think they change it up fairly often. Um, and then little lunchbox art projects that the kids can take and make art that 
imitates the work they've just seen. So we spent a ton of time in a building full of um, Saul LeWitt installations and then did a Saul LeWitt art kit where the kids got to, you know, make lines and stripes and um, Technicolor uh, projects. Um, and so anyway, Mass Mocha, it's worth, it's if, if you're within a like two hour drive of it on any of your jauntings this summer, um, take take the detour and go check it out. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I I just have to come in right behind that endorsement and and double down on it. I mean, it's a it is it is it is really a one of the great art destinations in America or really even the world. It is a cradle to grave appropriate experience. I mean, my kids are now fourteen and eleven. They love Mass Mocha. They've loved it their uh, whole lives. Um, I couldn't love it more. And in fact, what you've done is you've um, you've um, happily perturbed me into a slightly different um, endorsement than I was going to do. But there's a version of Mass Mocha exists in Tasmania, Australia, which is where I went after we were in uh, Melbourne. And um, so as as one of my endorsements, I want to say, yes, it is preposterously far to get to Tasmania. But if you are in Melbourne, if you've made it that far, it's about a 45-minute uh, in-the-air flight to get to Hobart, Tasmania, um, where you will find not only a kind of interestingly um, underdeveloped facsimile of Sonoma you know, or, or parts of California, like from the 1950s or 60s. I mean, before kind of everyone discovered it was paradise north of San Francisco. I mean, kind of rolling hills and Pinot Noir grapes and unbelievable produce and people doing their own thing. I mean, Tasmania is truly one of the most remarkable places I've ever visited in my life. But you'll also find a museum that's about 10 years old called Mona, the Museum of, of Old and New Art, which is sort of like Mass Mocha. It's a kind of monumental, semi-industrial space that they built actually underground beneath an existing vineyard in kind of a concrete bunker and the integration of art um, monumental installation uh, with uh, the space is remarkable but um, go to Tasmania just don't spoil it when you go and the other thing I want to endorse this week is a band called Always it's pronounced Always Always whatever but it's spelled with a W it's spelled with two V's um, A-L-V-V-A-Y-S, which is reminiscent of Chiverches, another band that I like, um, and they're not totally dissimilar, a bewitching female vocalist and kind of echoey, reverby um, pop uh, uh, backing track. But um, they're a little bit more rock and roll and indie rock and roll maybe than Chiverches is. But uh, um, anyway, so they have an unbelievably great catchy tune called Marry Me Archie. Um, and uh, they're about to come out with, from about 2014, a Canadian band from Toronto. They're about to come out with a new record from which they've released a, a single called In the Undertow, which is fantastic too. Um, I think uh, you people will like this music, so check it out. Thank you, Dana. Thanks, Stephen. Thanks, Julia. Thanks, Stephen. You'll find links to some of the things we talked about today at our show page, slate.com slash culturefest, and you can email us at culturefest at slate.com or drop us a note at our Facebook page, facebook.com slash culturefest. Our producer is Benjamin Frisch. Our intern is Daniel Schrader. The executive producer of Slate Podcast is Steve Lichtai, and the managing producer of Slate Podcast is June Thomas. And above them all, hovering is the poobah, Andy Bowers. He's the chief content officer of the Panoply Network. Culture Gap Fest is part of that network, and you can check out an entire roster of really terrific shows at panoply.fm. Our Twitter feed is at Slate Cult Fest. For Julia Turner and Dana Stevens, I'm Stephen Metcalf. We'll see you soon.